It is good to be with you all today. It is sunny outside right now. Yesterday was a gorgeous reminder of God's love for us. It's supposed to be almost 70 by the middle of this week, and then I'm praying for snow by the end. All right, so we'll, we'll see how we go with this. Have you ever considered the power of language? We use it to convey our thoughts. We use it to instruct other people. We use it to communicate commitment, or we use it to correct. And today we're going to be looking at two simple words that communicate a humongous message of hope for all of us. I want you to think through some of the two-word communications that communicate a humongous message. For instance, pull over. What does that communicate? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Time to find your license and insurance and proof of registration, correct? Like, that communicates a humongous message. Here's another message that carries a, or a couple of short words that communicate a huge message. You're fired. What does that communicate? Well, time to figure out something new for employment. Or how about these ones? I do. What do they communicate? Commitment of love and connection for a marriage and a commitment for the rest of your time together. Or how about these two words that are super important in our English language? Ice cream. (laughs) What does that communicate? Well, the next 15 minutes are going to be amazing, correct? Probably not the next day or the next time you go to buy jeans. But in the end, that's going to be a good 15 minutes. Sometimes it just takes a few words to communicate a very complex thought. And today we get to examine two such words. We're working through our annual series called Building on Our Heritage. And we're thinking about this in light of the fact that we are in the midst of our 60th anniversary as a church. We certainly want to reflect on all the amazing things that we have to be grateful for as after a 60-year history of being a church. And we want to think about the foundation that was laid through a commitment to following the teachings of the Word of God. We want to remind ourselves of the commitment to the gospel. We want to remind ourselves of the ways that our identity in Christ should govern the ways that we live as individuals and the ways that we carry things out as a church body. So to sum all of that up, we're thankful for the way that we've been established as a church that holds to the sufficiency of Scripture while clinging to the hope of the gospel. However, we want to ensure that we're not going to drift away from that truth, that we're not going to begin pursuing a different gospel. So we've started out this year by studying the book of Ephesians, and so far we've discussed some pretty important truths, such as, you're a saint. You are blessed. You're adopted in Christ. You are chosen in Christ. You are blessed in Christ. You are redeemed in Christ. And you are forgiven in Christ. And so far, our approach has been to look at a phrase or two from these first 14 verses of Ephesians. However, today we're going to change our approach and we're going to look at a phrase that is repeated multiple times in Ephesians 1, 1 through 14 to lead us to a better understanding of the outworking of the gospel in our life. We're going to be looking at our unity in Christ. In other words, you are united 
with Christ. And we're going to be talking about the implications that come with it. In the English language, we use prepositions to help change the meaning of the words that are the object of the preposition. Let me illustrate this for you so you can understand this. For instance, let's think about a boat in the middle of the ocean. And let's illustrate it with a person who needs a boat in the middle of the ocean because they are treading water out in the middle of the ocean all alone out there. And since my name, Johnny, for years has been used by preachers to describe all the naughty little kids in illustrations, I'm going to use a new name to illustrate our person. So we'll call him Trey, okay? All right, now, let's just use that for today. So here we are, we're on the shore at our lifeguard stand, and we see Trey out in the middle of the ocean treading water, okay? And we're reporting what we see, okay? Now listen to how I just changed the preposition, and it changes a whole lot of the meaning. For instance, I look out and I see Trey is at the boat. What does that mean? Well, he's getting close to the boat. There's probably some hope for Trey, all right? Now if I looked out and I said, Trey is under the boat, what would that say? Uh Uh-oh, right? We have a problem with our friend Trey, all right? Or if I say, Trey is beyond the boat, what does that mean? He's way far out there. Or Trey is over the boat. Well, that doesn't work because if Trey is over the boat, he doesn't need a boat, right? Okay, so that's beside the point. But what we're looking for is to say what? Trey is in the boat. The subject didn't change. The object didn't change, just the preposition changed, and it communicated a very different message. So remember the power of the preposition. Today, we are talking about the truth of us being in Christ. We're not talking about being around Christ. We're talking about being united with Christ. We are in Christ. I'd like us to read our passage together today, and it's going to be on the PowerPoint today because I want to point out a few things as I read through. But if you want to follow along in your Bible, you can please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. That's page 150 of the back section of the Bible located under the chair in front of you. As we read through this passage, I want you to notice how many times the phrase in Christ shows up, all right? Just pay attention to that as we read through this. And I want you to start thinking about the implications of this to our theology. Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved." In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. 
In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now, if you were counting as we went along, there are 10 possible in him phrases that we saw throughout that passage of scripture. Each one of them will bear their own implications, but we'll boil them all down today and talk about three benefits of our unity in Christ. In order for us to start things off well, I think it might be good for us to begin with an understanding of what is unity in Christ. In other words, what does it mean to have unity in Christ? This phrase in Christ certainly shows up a lot of times in our passage, but what does it mean? A passage that explains this well outside of our text for this morning is Galatians 2 verse 20, which says this, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So now we have this concept that's being taught to us from Galatians 2.20, telling us that we are crucified with Christ. So what does this mean? I want to explain it using one of my favorite passages, and I don't want to dive too far into it because we'll be studying it in just a few weeks. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we're told this. We are told that in our original nature, as we go through life, as we are born, we have a sin nature. And the description of our sin nature is that we are dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. In other words, we can't change. Dead people don't change, right? I'm not going to die one day and decide to lose weight. I will lose weight, different process, okay? You can't change at that point in time. Once you are dead, you can't change. And so through Ephesians chapter 2, we're told that we're left in this hopeless state, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his love for us, sends his son to die for us. What is the only hope for a dead person? The only hope for a dead person is for a living person to act on their behalf to restore life to them. So let me illustrate. A few years ago, we had a teenager that came to our house and was talking with myself and one of our interns. All of our kids had been put, to, had been put down to bed and they were resting. My wife was there. Um, just kind of in the background doing some work and some chores and things. And we were talking to this teenager. And all of a sudden, in the middle of our conversation, he clutched his chest, he tensed up, and he fell over on the ground. It was rather like, what in the world is going on? So we jumped into action. Thankfully, my intern at that time had a bunch of training in CPR, and he began the process of CPR. My wife got on the phone, called 911, and I ran around trying to figure out what in the world to do. Okay, And so there we were. And in that situation, by God's grace, because of... The efforts of my intern applying CPR and the quick arrival of the ambulance, his life was restored. He went to the hospital and he is still living today. Now, this illustrates a point, though. If nobody living would have been present in the room, what would have happened to him? He would have stayed dead. Now, this is what Galatians 2.20 is expounding upon. We were dead in our trespasses and our sin. 
But through Christ's intervention for us on the cross and his resurrection, we now can be dead to the very sin that once enslaved us and left us hopeless. Christ died and rose again, giving us the ultimate hope that we can rise with him. We can be with him and be restored to where we're supposed to be. And now we are dead to the very sin that used to hold us captive. Our old self was crucified with him. The body of sin is done away with. We're no longer slaves to sin because we are in Christ. We are freed from sin. What makes this even more profound is when we consider how the Father views his Son. Think back on a time in Jesus' ministry when the Father commented on his view of Jesus. During Christ's baptism and transfiguration, God the Father made his love and approval clear by saying things like this, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. In his commentary on this passage, a Puritan, Richard Sibb, said this, What a support to our faith is this, that God the Father, the party offended by our sins, is so well pleased with the work of redemption. And what a comfort is this, that seeing God's love rest on Christ as well as pleased in him, we may gather that he is as well pleased with us if we be in Christ. For his love rests in a whole Christ, in Christ mystical as well as Christ natural, a dual nature, because he loves him and us with one love. Let us therefore embrace Christ and in him God's love and build our faith safely on such a Savior that is furnished with so high a commission. Let me put that plainly for us. Our union with Christ is what allows each of the descriptive positions we've discussed in previous weeks from this early portion of Ephesians. Because we are in Christ, you are adopted. Because you are in Christ, you are forgiven. Because you are in Christ, you are chosen. Because you are in Christ, you are redeemed, and so on and so forth. We've been effectively included into Christ's very person, allowing us to partake of every benefit he enjoys. John Piper said it this way, no saving good, no eternal good, no God-exalting good, no soul-satisfying good comes to us except as we are connected to Christ. So let's look at some of these implications. And the first benefit of our union in Christ is this, our eternal salvation is secured. Our eternal salvation is secured. Our first three in him passages can be covered under this umbrella. Let's look at them together. First of all, we are given a new identity in him. This is seen in the very first verse where it says, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. There's two things being taught here. First of all, we're given a new title or the title of saints. And this involves our status, so as a saint we are set apart to God, and it involves our affiliation, so we are identified as being set apart to God. And then we also see from this a a little bit of what could be some prepositional confusion. See, the Greek is quite clear, and it's properly translated here, that they are faithful in Christ Jesus. We might expect as we read through this a different preposition here, something like faithful to Christ Jesus or faithful of Christ Jesus. But this is an identity passage and part of our unity with Christ. So we're being identified as being in Christ. We are unified with him. 
So what are the spiritual implications of our new identity in Jesus? The first one is obvious. Each one of us creatures were created by our Creator with a need for an identity. You ever notice how hard people work to find their identity? And sometimes we find our identity in some group affiliation, like your political agreements, or your philosophical thinking, or your moral alignment, or even other things like sports teams, or workout philosophies. Have you ever met a CrossFitter who hasn't told you that they're a CrossFitter, right? Like, what are they doing? They're, they're identifying with something. Others might place it in their ethnicity or their family origins. My family is Norwegian. We named all of our kids Norwegian names because why? That's part of our identity. An identity can be found in what you like or what you do for your work or your enjoyment or otherwise. And it can be attached to a status or an accomplishment. The options are almost endless. But the idea is this. We place our identity somewhere. And when our identity is lost, it can be challenging for us. As a teenager in the 90s, I grew up right outside of Chicago, Illinois, so I spent a good bit of my winter celebrating yet another championship for the Chicago Bulls. And I really enjoyed watching my favorite player, Scottie Pippen, and his faithful sidekick, Michael Jordan. And I can remember during my college years hearing Michael Jordan being interviewed about life after retirement from basketball. And here's what he said. I remember him talking about how hard it was for him to find purpose in life without the drive of competition in basketball. He talked about how most people retire and they want to relax, but he wakes up every day with an aching because he just wants to compete. Now let me ask you this, friend. What identity do you cling to? What is the thing that if it was taken from you would leave you reeling? What is the thing that if it disappeared would lead you to despair? What is the thing that if it disappeared would cause you to need to redefine your life? Is it your job? Is it your looks? Your brains? your family, your stuff, your abilities? What's different about our identity in Christ? Well, it's where our identity was intended to rest. So what does that do? It frees us to live our intended purpose for life. Our identity in Christ helps us to understand that nothing else can make it untrue. Because with Christ's finished work on the cross, our new identity is eternally sealed with Christ. Nothing can remove that identity from us. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Here's another implication of our found identity in Jesus The search is now over. If you have your identity in Christ, guess what? The search for your identity is now over. You can rest because you don't have to find your identity in your job, looks, muscles, position, wealth, or achievements, or any other empty source of identity. When you're in Christ, you don't need to attach your identity to anything else. You're precisely where you were created to be. 
Now let's move on from this thought about our identity and let's move on to our second thought here. We are spiritually blessed in Him. Our passage goes on to outline this in the next portion here where it says in verse 2 that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Pastor Viers expounded on this point in January. And we learned this, with Christ comes unimaginable blessings that we know in part now, but will come to realize in full once we're finally with him. Our unity with Christ adds another element to the discussion, and it might be a less popular point than our last one. Because what do you and I deserve if we're not in Christ? What do we deserve? Eternal death. In fact, we're told that one sin equals full guilt. And as a result of our guilt, it equals us being condemned. And because we are condemned, it equals us deserving death. It leaves us in a place of complete hopelessness. And yet, what has Jesus himself done for us? Well, he took our place. His righteousness was credited to us. We were justified or made as though we were always right. We were pardoned from our sin. We were rewarded with the hope of eternity. That is our only hope. So what should this bring out in our hearts? Well, regardless of our circumstances, it should bring about thanksgiving. Even in my suffering, I have this to be thankful for, that Christ allowed me to be restored to him. In the best moments of life, I have this truth to be thankful for. When I'm anxious, I have this truth to be thankful for. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Have you ever asked someone, how are you doing? And they say either, either one of these two sentences back to you. So you say, how are you doing? And they say, I am blessed. Or you say, how are you doing? And they say, I'm better than I deserve. All right, what, what does this mean? Does this mean that they never mourn or they never suffer? No. Does it mean that we're somehow supposed to just fake our way through life? No. It's simply them stating their disposition. I'm blessed in Christ. I have admired often those in our church and the ministries surrounding our church who are going through significant challenges, yet they still find ways to serve Christ. Why? Because even though life is difficult, God has still blessed them beyond what they were deserving of, and that has led them to praise the Lord. Is life hard for them? Absolutely. Would life be better for them if they didn't have the trials and sufferings of this world? 100%. But are they still blessed beyond measure? You better believe it. So it affects their life, and it's demonstrated by the way that they serve. Part of that blessing is the fact that we are holy and blameless in Him. Now this in Him phrase might seem a bit disjointed. Our passage mentions that we are chosen in Him. But if you're looking at verse 4, there's a purpose clause that's attached to that election. And it says this, that we would be holy and blameless before him. What does that mean? Well, this is a present reality as well as an unfolding expectation. Because of Christ's sinlessness upon earth, even though he was tempted in all things like we are, he didn't sin. So when the Holy One took our sin on Himself on the cross, He credited to us the gift of His blamelessness. And because we are united in Him, our sinfulness was removed and His holiness was credited to us. 
So when God looks upon me, he no longer sees my sin. He sees Christ's righteousness. Now, if that doesn't get you fired up this morning, then you need to check your pulse immediately because here's what it means. No matter what your sins were, they've been removed if you've placed your trust in Christ's free gift that he offers you and you are given eternal life that is only available for those who are blameless. And that's only possible if Christ was blameless and granted that to you by dying for your sins upon the cross. And so therefore, if Christ has set you apart through his holiness then it should be expected that we are seeking to live in light of that holiness. 1 Peter 1, 14-16 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Paul sought to encourage believers by telling them of the grandeur of salvation, but he also wanted to challenge them to live in keeping with God's grace. Life from God results in transformed life with God. This expectation of holy and blameless living flows from God's choosing people and separating them to himself. So already in the first few verses, we've seen our identity, our disposition, and now our purpose. And I don't think it's, I need to convince us why purpose is essential. Because much like identity without purpose, despair tends to move in. And it takes residence in our life wherever there's a vacancy. The examples of this are endless. Look at anyone who sees no purpose in their life and you'll likely see the presence of despair. Are you beginning to see the power of our union with Christ? Brothers and sisters, we are called to be that which we are because of Christ, and that is holy and blameless. How does that purpose in our union with Christ affect our life? How does our union in Christ affect our holiness and personal choices? How does our union in Christ affect our holiness within our marriages? How does our Union with Christ affect our holiness in our parenting or our holiness in our entertaining or our holiness in our thinking. And to reiterate the broader point of these first three passages, this is a part of our security that we enjoy when we're in Christ. And here's another blessing to that. None of us needs to earn our identity or earn our disposition or earn our purpose because it was won for us by Christ. How freeing is that? If I'm left to determine my own identity, I would fail miserably. If I'm left to determine my own disposition for life, I would be rocked by every disappointment that ever comes along my way. If I'm left to determine my own purpose for life, I would be hopeless. And this leads us to the second wonderful benefit of our unity in Christ. We are part of the family of God. Now that our position with Christ is set, and now that our outlook on life is set in Christ, and now that our purpose is defined with Christ, we turn our attention to what this looks like for our unity with Christ as part of the family of God. There are six ways our being in Christ affects our identification as part of the family of God. The first three we've already talked about in depth, and so we'll just briefly recap those. So let's work through those. First of all, we are adopted in Him. This is the 
forth in him statement. And it spans verses 5 and 6 where it says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. The larger context describes the mechanics of our adoption. Look at the passage with me. It's love that initiates the process. Jesus serves as the agent and the payment. God's kindness informs his will. His grace is put on display. And verse 6 brings it back to our union in Christ. The implications of our spiritual adoption when we consider our union with Christ are simple. We're no longer spiritual orphans. We're secure in our new family. We're cared for in our new family. We're loved by our new father. We are known by our father. Could you imagine an orphan who is adopted by a king who still worries about what he'll eat or who will care for him or where he'll sleep or how he'll get by? He now has access to all that the king has. It would be silly for him to worry about whether or not he will have enough. Brothers and sisters, it's far more ridiculous when you and I worry about lesser matters. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, calling us men and women of little faith when we are anxious about life. We can trust our Heavenly Father. Why? Because He'll care for us and keep us eternally secure. And then as we saw a couple of weeks ago, we are redeemed in Him. This speaks to our previous state, not only were we without a legitimate family, we were enslaved to sin and death, but Christ bought us from our former state. Like, what an incredible thing to think about. If Jesus paid for our redemption, what more needs to be paid towards our redemption? Absolutely nothing. Is that how you and I live? Though everything's been covered, how often do we still try to earn our own redemption? There's great freedom in recognizing that Christ has bought us from our former state because what really messes up our purpose to be holy and blameless, if we go to God with if we go to God and say to him, "Here's my payment for my redemption." What's Christ going to say to that? I already paid for that. I paid for that on the cross. I took all your sin on myself. I redeemed you. Stop trying to pay off a debt that you no longer owe. Or worse, what if we recognize how unholy and blameworthy we are apart from our union in Christ and we say, I can't be redeemed because I have nothing to give. What is Christ going to say to that? Um, Of course you bring nothing of value to to the table. You have no righteousness of your own with which to pay off your debt, but Christ stands ready to redeem you. In fact, in our State of sinfulness, Christ died for you. Romans 5 says, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Friend, I say this to you today. If you're weary of trying to earn your own righteousness, or if you feel hopeless at your lack of righteousness, 
the gospel is the most freeing news of all. Because in spite of your inability to pay your eternal debt, Christ died for you. In spite of your lack of righteousness, Christ died for you. And Christ will redeem you if you simply place your trust in him. This leads us to our third thought here. We are forgiven in him. Not only has payment been given for our redemption, but forgiveness has been granted for our sins. We talked about this last week. Our only hope for restoration is based on God's forgiveness of our sins. Remember, we talked about original sin. and the original sin of Adam and Eve, we were passed down a sin nature. And while this reality is hard to accept, we can't help but recognize the fact that we also have our own personal sin. It doesn't take much investigation to recognize that we struggle with sin. You see it whenever you watch the news. You see it whenever you observe your friends. You see it whenever you're with those that you love. And you should see it whenever you look in the mirror. And where does it leave you? With complete hopelessness. Because even if you try your best not to sin, it doesn't take very long before you fall again. So soon, in comparison with the law of God's word, you'll recognize that you are guilty and therefore you are without hope. But just as we talked about in the point before, Christ redeemed our debt and we can stand forgiven. Our wages of sin that was death is forgiven by his free gift of salvation. Last week while I was preaching in the family service, a young girl that was in that service leaned over to her mom and said to her, I want to do what Pastor Johnny is talking about. And so she received the forgiveness of Christ. What an incredible thing. One of my favorite songs sums this up so well in the chorus. It says this, This the power of the cross, Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath, we stand forgiven at the cross. What an incredible truth God forgives then we can rest in the family of God because we are illumined in Him. If you look at our passage, we see this in the end of verse 8 and all through 9. It says this, In all wisdom and insight He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him. This trifecta of wisdom, insight, and knowledge are gifted to those who are in Him. Which is to say, our state before Christ joined us to Himself was much the opposite. We lived according to our own wisdom. We tried to navigate life in our own way. We had no real understanding of the or knowledge of the things of life that mattered the most. So we pursued what? The things of the foolishness of this world instead. The things of wisdom that come from living life God's way was foreign to us. But in Christ, we have an understanding of that wisdom. What are the implications of this? Proverbs 7 describes what it looks like for a person to pursue the foolishness of this world. And at the end of Proverbs 7, in verses 24 and 27, it gives the result of what happens to the person who continues to pursue their own foolishness. And it says this, Now therefore, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. What does that tell you? If you pursue your own foolishness, you will end up in destruction. But Proverbs 8, the very next chapter, describes what it looks like for a person to pursue wisdom. Wisdom that calls out to us. Wisdom that might not be flashy. Wisdom that might seem like the long road. But here's the description of those who follow wisdom or live life God's way. It says this, For he who finds me finds life 
and obtains favor from the Lord. Friends, through our union in Christ, we are offered the wisdom of living life God's way as the Holy Spirit illuminates wisdom for us. If you're here today and you're pursuing your own source of wisdom and joy in life, it won't take long until you discover it will never truly satisfy. Instead, trust in the wisdom that God offers you. Our next point is that we are now full in Him. Verse 10 makes it clear that all things find their unity and fullness in Jesus with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. This is a matter he continually pointed to throughout his ministry. Christ said things like this, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. If anyone is hungry, let him partake of the bread of life. If anyone desires rest, let him come to me and find it. If anyone wants to know the way, hear the truth, live the life, it's found in me alone. In other words, every ounce of our spiritual thirst and hunger finds its full and final satisfaction in Christ alone. The implication here is plain. Go to him and remain in him. Seek satisfaction nowhere else. Stop running to things that leave you empty and feeling like you need more. And as if this wasn't enough, we are inheritors in him. You guys exhausted? We've gone through a lot of theology here, but we'll keep going. It says this, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end of that who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Our union with Christ gives us our identity, disposition, purpose, adoption, redemption, forgiveness, illumination, and fullness. And now we hear that we're going to receive an inheritance. This is like spiritual fogo de chow. You go there and you get all the goodness and then they just keep bringing more and more of the goodness. And it just keeps coming and more and more food comes out. That's what this is like. I was already full with the blessings I received because I'm united with Christ. But now I understand that we still need to discuss this inheritance piece. None of this is earned of our own volition. Just like an inheritance is given, it's not gained. And what is the inheritance that Christ gives us? It's not the lake house. It's not a huge investment portfolio. It's not even a 1969 Ford Mustang Mach 1 orange with black racing stripes. It's that we are with God. We are with Him. And we want for nothing because He's all we were created to want. That leads us to our third point. Our position is sealed by the Holy Spirit. As if to emphasize the matter, our final union with Christ's implication is bookended by two in him phrases. Look, with, look here with me. Just wait. You're, you're, you can fold your pamphlet later. Let's pay attention to this. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Next week, Pastor Viers is going to spell out the implications of our indwelling or the theological reality that those who are in Christ have God's Holy Spirit resident within them. What another awesome preposition there. 
But through, though the implications will be detailed then, one point that God's word is seeking to make in this passage is our permanency when we're in him. In other words, rest assured, brothers and sisters in Christ, our union with him is sealed, and our God, who never breaks his promises, has pledged our inheritance. Isn't it great to be in him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth that we have unity with you because we are in Christ. Lord, I'm so thankful for the fact that it's not of anything that I can earn or anything that I can do that I put my hope in, but rather it's in the inheritance that you've given to us and the fact that you have sealed it with the reminder that you have redeemed us and you have restored us to you. Lord, help us to live that out in our lives as we go through our weeks. Lord, help us to live that out. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen.